Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight we are hearing about environmental research taking place in the vastly different disciplines of engineering and psychology. First up, an engineering slant on solving environmental issues. Researchers at the University of Canterbury have $3 million and three years to come up with some new ways to clean up water. The project, Clean Water Technology for Restoring Te Mana o Te Wai, is led by environmental engineer Ashling O'Sullivan. To find out more, I catch up with her and with product design expert Tim Huber in a 3D printing lab in the School of Engineering. Ecological engineering is a subdiscipline of engineering that uses knowledge of ecosystem process or how the environment works to provide solutions for civilizations, but also solutions for the planet in a nutshell. So we would solve environmental problems, but we'd look at it from a whole systems perspective and what benefits the ecosystem as well as solving problems for society. You've got an exciting project that's about to start. Do you want to paint me a quick picture of that one? So we have a project called Clean Water Technologies, and this is a very exciting project that uh, is going to start in a few months' time. It's funded by SIFTI. SIFTI are Science for Technological Innovation. They are one of the National Science Challenges. So it's a three-year project with seven different partner institutions across Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I'm leading it. And our goal is to create the next generation of uh, water treatment media that are sustainable, that are not made from plastic, and that are going to be able to circumvent the limitations associated with filters currently. So this is water treatment of water that we're going to drink, or we're just going to clean up wastewater? We're not targeting drinking water. This is wastewater from, say, municipal wastewater treatment plants, so that's when you flush your toilet and water that goes down your showers uh, and your inside drains all goes to our wastewater treatment plants. And at the moment, 60% of these wastewater treatment plants are not going to meet these more stringent water quality regulations in the new water reforms. So we're going to help them meet those by targeting particularly nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, as well as some pathogens and heavy metals. So you need to be able to extract all of these things? So we're going to immobilise them. Um, As I explained to my students, law mass conservation, we can't get rid of anything. We can only convert it from one form to another. So we're converting it from a dissolved form in water or a mobile form to an immobile form so that when the water passes through, it goes into our inland waterways cleaner than it could otherwise. 
How do we do this at the moment? So at the moment we have some filters that are made from plastic at a wastewater treatment plant. We have some that are made from activated carbon, but there's a lot of complexities associated with these filters and there's also a lot of uh, manipulation where we have to add chemicals that are potentially hazardous and, as I said, the media are plastic, so they invariably end up in landfill. So that's not great for the planet. It's also not optimising what we could be doing. So it's not getting the best treatment efficiency as we could. What's your great idea? What are you planning? So our great idea is we are going to produce the next generation of wastewater treatment media. And why they'll be the next generation is because we're going to bioplot them or biofabricate them. So this means we're going to be able to print them like 3D printing. But we can use a precise recipe of the materials we use. Some of those materials will be waste resources that we'll reuse. So that aligns with more a circular economy. And we'll also be able to manipulate the shape of them, the porosity and the chemical recipe on the outside so we can target the wastewater signatures rather than just relying on the status quo. So fabricating these things, this is where you come in, Tim? That is exactly where I come in, yes. So I'm on another project, another research project as well, where we have looked at 3D printing really complex structures that turn out to be really good at creating interesting flow patterns throughout the structure. So and that is interesting for the other project because we're trying to bind molecules and viruses and so on. But of course, there's a huge amount of overlap with trying to bind pollutants. Right? Because the only big difference is really the chemistry of the surface. And so and then one of the things that I particularly do in that research project is trying to 3D print a new type of material um, that hasn't been 3D printed before that is specifically made for the application and that's what we'll be doing in this project as well, with the difference that our raw material is potentially a waste material. So we are thinking about maybe spent brewer's grain, maybe seashells, mussel shells. Wool offcuts, um, wool off-cuts. also with a, a core structure of probably cellulose based from the agri-food waste industry. So we see lots of opportunity to use what some people call waste, I like to see as uh, uncapitalized resources and to uh, valorize, so make them a new resource, a new economically valuable resource. So the proposed research we're doing, we've consulted really widely with industry, with government, and of course with our, our Māori partners to get their feedback before the project came to fruition and really overwhelming support for the novelty and the need for this technology. So that helped validate what we're doing is on the right path. The project also fits within the SIFTI brief, which has to be sticky, so that's relevant to Aotearoa New Zealand, and also has to be stretchy, so it has to be very complex, very challenging, and it has to be a, a, it's a STEM project. So you've got this idea of the ingredients you might use for these um, filters. Do you have any recipes yet for how you might go about using the ingredients? This is going to be part of, of the stretch of of the sciences to see how well we can actually print those or bioprint them in different combinations and then we will need to test those in the lab for different wastewater signatures so whether it's a high nutrient whether potentially metals or potentially emerging contaminants how do they respond to these different media part of the project where i come in that is part of the stretchy science because we ultimately have very little idea of how that 
would work with the materials we ultimately end up choosing. What we do have is a fair amount of experience in printing similar materials. So we've done, in my research group, we've done a fair amount of work and we've identified methods for how we can figure out how a 3D printer processes those materials and what becomes important in those processing steps. So if you look around and you see the printer moving, over there you can see it's, it's extruding a type of material and the speed at which it does that and the temperature at which it does that and the speed at which it moves all affect the quality of the structure it's trying to make. And those are all things that interact with each other. So we have to do really complex amount of study of combining different factors and figuring out how that works with the material we're trying to print to create the structure we need so Ash and Ricardo in their labs can test them to see how well they can work for treating wastewater. So Ricardo Bella-Mendoza has just arrived. Ricardo is an environmental engineer and he's also on the team. And So Ricardo is going to be leading a lot of the adsorption studies. So this is how the media react to the wastewater signature that we're going to be testing in the lab. My formation is in environmental and chemical engineering, process engineering. So my focus, or the focus of my research is on water quality, a processes that we can use to remove contaminants from water. So this is a very exciting project because we can potentially use, reuse waste materials to remove pollutants from water. And then we can potentially use of, uh, some of these uh, pollutants in the water for uh, a useful uh, purpose. For example, we can remove nutrients from the water and then we can apply this absorbance with the nutrients into the soil and that can then recover uh, fertilizers. So what sort of qualities do, will these media need to be to be able to absorb different kinds of pollutants or nutrients? Well, they may have some physical characteristics, like uh, having a large, a specific surface area. So the larger the area, the larger the chances of these pollutants to, to attach to the surfaces. We will be looking at the porosity, again, because that will change the surface area of the pollutants. We may also have to, to make some chemical changes to the material, so we can have some chemicals that will be uh, friendly with the pollutants that we want to remove from the water, so they can actually attach very strongly, and then we can remove it from the, from the water. So we call that additive manufacturing in a technical term, which is effectively what we're going to do, but additive manufacturing of the complex structures that we envisage are very very much in their infancy, and especially in engineering, most of the applications would have been applied to medical technologies, and certainly there's never been an application yet to water treatment systems, but because of the recent advances in 3D printing, we thought we can capitalise on, on those advances and use our combined knowledge and, and understanding of additive manufacturing, marry the two and apply them to a wide range of water treatment technologies. So have you worked on projects that are, that are planning to use the kind of waste materials that this project is using? Well, not at the moment, but there is a large potential for this kind of materials to be used in different aspects of wastewater treatment. For example, one other area that we'll be tackling with this project is the biological uh, removal of pollutants. So usually what happens in wastewater treatment plants is that we need some ways to retain large masses, volumes of microorganisms in tanks. So one way to do this is to provide them with surfaces where they can grow, forming biofilms. Right. So usually we use uh, plastic materials, ceramic materials to do this, 
But in this case, we can use uh, bio-waste materials, biological materials to provide some support surfaces for the microorganisms to grow. And at the same time, food, a source of carbon for the microorganisms to, to eat. So while they are using, for example, nitrogen, removing nitrogen from the wastewater, they can be using the carbon from the supporting media, and that will help them to growth and to support their activities. Now we are actually standing in a 3D printing lab. There's some things on the table there. Can we just have, quickly have a look? I'm thinking that the terms that I'm hearing from these two are porosity and enormous surface area, which implies something very fine, which is going to be a bit of a challenge for you. That is a bit of a challenge. The good news is it has been a challenge for a couple of years for me already uh, <laughs> due to other projects I've been working on. So what we see here on the table, those are um, parts made from thermoplastic. So like your standard plastics for 3D printing, they're called PLA and ABS. Those are what most people probably associate with a 3D printer. And we again, we see them here in the background. They're printing a plastic filament, a string of plastic. So they're a feedstock of known quality. So you don't feedstock of known quality. So what what the the big difference of this project is we actually be using a different technology. So we are using a technology that is closer to what's called bioplotting. This is what has been largely used so far in medical applications for tissue scaffolding. So for trying to make 3D complex structures for human cells to attach to and grow and diverge and develop. But those printers or plotters that have been developed, they're using gel-based material. So it's a little somewhere between jelly and toothpaste um, and how the materials behave. And so we have a lot of experience with this. And the huge advantage of those materials is they're inherently porous. So they have a very fine internal porous structure. You won't be able to see them with the naked eye. So if you look at them, they look like a solid. But if you look at them under a microscope, you will see lots and lots and lots of little pores creating that um, really large surface area that Ricardo needs for his chemistry. Um, so that's different from what you're holding in your hand, which is solid. That is very different solid. from what I'm holding in my hand. What, what is interesting about the part that I'm holding in my hand is this is one of the huge advantages of 3D printing is this is a part that you couldn't make in any other way than 3D printing. Because what is so unique about 3D printing is that you're building a part up from nothing into something, while traditionally, what we call traditionally manufacture, is subtractive. So we're taking things away from a block of material. And so the structures we'll be looking into 3D printing for this project, they are so complex that 3D printing is the only way you can make them. There is no other way how you could machine them. But what we do know from other research is that they are extremely good at creating not only a large surface area um, but also really interesting flow through those internal channels. Well, I've just pulled out a picture from actually a research proposal for this this project, um, Alison, and uh, this is a, a picture of well, it's a dual picture. It's a 3D printed gyroid structure. We may not proceed with the gyroid structure. We, we have to test what geometry works best for us. But what you can see on the right-hand side is SEM imagery, so that's scanning electron microscopy imaging. And so you can see the highly porous nature, but also the, how that gives rise to a high amount of surface area. And so the more surface area, the more opportunity for chemical transfer chemical immobilization. It's interesting. Um, if you hadn't so told me that was a 3D printed object, the porous close-up looks like a piece of coral I might pick up on the beach. Well, that's right. That's where ecological engineering comes in. We're really biomimicking what happens in nature. And by understanding how biological systems work, we can replicate that as engineers, but managing it in a precise way for monumental gains, hopefully. 
overall the the media that we are aiming to produce we want them to have a lower footprint so a greater environmental contribution use them at the end of their life cycle so if they can be regenerated if they, so that means they can be reused again or they may end up um, going to a landfill but they'll be biodegradable or they may end up as a fertilizer so we we are keeping the whole material loop closed. So there's two parts to this? So there's uh, effectively a, a, a dual prong approach in terms of the uh, technology we're trying to improve. And one is called a biocarrier, and that biocarrier is the plastic media, current plastic media that houses a whole heap of appropriate microorganisms to help treat wastewater biologically, so every wastewater treatment plant. But we're also, at the same time, looking at uh, going to improve the filtration side so this is the adsorption um, capacity of media for a whole heap of other wastewater applications and we're looking at at 3d printing those additive manufacturing those to create optimal geometry optimal porosity optimal chemical recipes specific for different wastewater treatment applications if when this technology uh, is proven its application we think even beyond the water treatment sector such as like air filtration systems gas scrubbers so we don't see it as limited to uh, water treatment wastewater treatment applications so in terms of ultimate manufacturing so not just at the testing scale but in the production scale when you get to that stage 3d printing is still going to be completely key wow that is a very good question so what the big problem with 3d printing from a manufacturing point of view is that it's very slow so your production speed doesn't scale with the part numbers you're making. So it takes us, if you're making one part, let's say it takes us 30 minutes. If you're making a 1,000 parts, we would need a 1,000 printers, and then they'll all be taking 30 minutes to make a 1,000 parts, right? So that is, of course, bad news if you're thinking about the sort of volumes we would need for water treatment in New Zealand. The good news is that as we are also doing, I'm also part of another research group where we're currently developing a new type of 3D batch manufacturing. So it's not quite 3D printing, but it is a technology that allows us to make those same complex geometries at a much, much higher speed. So probably between 10 to 100 times faster than what we currently can do with the 3D printers that we bought from other companies. And so this is how the research between this project that we are about to start and the project I started on last year, how they can connect, because the technology we're using in both projects is the same. We're just using different recipes, formulations for totally different applications. So we call that mass customization. So when we produce large batch scales, and as Tim said, it may not be uh, bioplotting when we go and scale this technology up uh, over time, but it'll have proven that the science is feasible to produce these media that circumvent the limitations associated with the media at the moment. And if you look at the predictions from industry, what will happen in the 3D printing space, the assumption is that 3D printing will get faster and faster and cheaper and cheaper, so it will become, in all likelihood, another method for mass manufacturing. That is a prediction. We do not know if that will come true, but um, we're currently operating on the idea that in 10 years' time, we all might have a 3D printer sitting in our garage or there will be a 3D printing bureau at every corner and you can just go get the stuff made and it won't be a problem. I guess one of the points, I'm not sure if we made this yet, is the reason we're going to, we are focusing on the media 
is because we've an opportunity to make a bigger impact than just choosing, say, one technology. If we work on a, a media filtration, we can apply that to many technologies, and that's what really excites me of going down this pathway, rather than trying to optimise one particular technology for one sector. How many years have you got to do this? <laughs> we've got three years, Alison, but as I alluded to earlier, we have a really strong team of science leaders, science researchers across this programme, and we have a number of uh, rangatahi scientists coming in, and we are very proud to work with Māori partners on this in co-developing um, this technology. Obviously, within three years, we are not going to have commercialised the technology where it's available in every Bunnings or, or every water treatment shop, but we'll certainly be in a, hopefully a very strong position um, where we've tested it in the field, the small scale in the field, and then ready to hopefully take it from there to commercialise. But one of the key things we hadn't talked about yet is what we can do is quantify the true environmental footprint of these media. So we're going to use a technique called life cycle assessment, and we can use different computational models to do that. And we will be able to quantify how much carbon, how much water is um, consumed or used in generating this media. And we can compare that to the status quo. And we can also look at if these media are in different Water, wastewater treatment applications how big a footprint is that on the environment overall at the moment that's what happened these these media aren't considered for their whole of life costs and that's uh, I guess as an ecological engineer that's a, a core aspect I think is really important to look at the whole system. Thanks Ashling. Ashling O'Sullivan is an environmental engineer at the University of Canterbury where she leads CELTS the Centre for Ecological Technical Solutions also at the University of Canterbury, Tim Huber is in the School of Product Design, and Ricardo Bella Mendoza works with wastewater in the area of humanitarian engineering. Clean water technology for restoring te mana o te wai is funded by the Science for Technological Innovation National Science Challenge. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au hurihuri, hei hōtaka e pānaki a papa tuanuku tangaroa mei rangi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, Vokia Abrahams is a Victoria University of Wellington psychologist. She works in environmental behaviour change. Her research focuses on human behaviour in relation to a range of environmental issues such as energy use and travel mode choice. That is, what's it going to take to make us save energy or use the car less? I begin by asking her about environmental psychology. Environmental psychology broadly looks at people's relationships with the natural and the built environment. So environmental psychologists will look at things like people's connectedness to the natural environment and do people who feel a strong connection to nature, do they also engage in more environmentally protective uh, behaviours? Environmental psychology looks at uh, what is known as place attachment, so the meaningful relationships that people have with places and whether that, again, kind of can help foster in environmental engagement. Um, so it's a very broad field in that sense. We, we look at a lot of different things, but broadly it's about the relationships between people and the environment and how can we kind of improve situations so that it has better outcomes for both people and as well as the environment. So you do research into how to encourage pro-environmental behaviour? Yes, yes. So that's my kind of research interest and expertise. So I look at 
what motivates people to engage in pro-environmental behavior, what are the barriers for people to engage in pro-environmental behavior, and how can we use and, and know how effective behavior change interventions are to change people's behavior. So from a general sense, it's not enough just to give people information. No, no. So it's in a way a bit ironic because information provision is probably one of the more widely used approaches. And information provision can be effective in terms of raising awareness, right? So if people don't really know about, for example, the impacts of climate change or about sort of the environmental impacts of the behaviors they do in their daily life, like what can I do to reduce my carbon footprint? So obviously information plays a really important role, um, but it tends to increase people's awareness, but it does not automatically translate into behavior change. So you'd need sort of broader kind of approaches to, to make that happen. So what kind of things do you then need to do to actually get people to change behaviours? Give me a couple of examples. I guess the first thing I'll say is that behaviour change is pretty hard. I mean, speaking from my own experience, and maybe you can think of your own kind of life where you've decided to make a change and it hasn't exactly happened. New Year's resolutions may be an example of that. Um, and so behaviour change is really difficult. And so what psychologists do is really look at understanding people's motivations and if we know what motivates people then we can perhaps design better more effective behavior change interventions so an example of that is uh, the use of social norms so research in psychology has for years now shown that people are often guided by what other people do so our behavior is influenced by what what we see other people do so for example in wellington jaywalking is a is an example so you often see people jaywalking they look at the you know other people are crossing the road so they will follow without necessarily looking at the oncoming traffic uh saying thank you to the bus driver those are sort of things that you do in your daily life that a lot of people are doing it so so especially as a newcomer i mean I've, i'm relatively new to new zealand so i noticed that and so you kind of copy that behavior uh, you saw a similar thing with face masking when it wasn't yet mandated for example on public transport i caught myself looking around so you know how many people are wearing masks and should i be wearing masks and so Knowing that social norms affect our behavior can then be used as part of interventions, and that, that's what a lot of people, um, including myself, have done. So when, for example, households are told that their neighbors are saving electricity, that, that can spur action on their part as well. So when you know that your neighbors are saving energy or saving electricity, then studies have shown that that's an effective way to encourage behavior change. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question, but it's really, I guess the broader point I'm trying to make is that it's important to look at what motivates people before kind of launching into an intervention that may or may not work. It's really important to know if we know what motivates people, then that can help us inform better interventions or by better, I mean more effective interventions. So in terms of your research into lowering energy use, mm. what have been some effective interventions there? So I've actually also looked at information provision. And this was a study I did in my home country in the Netherlands. We, we looked at what is known as tailored information. That's a type of information that's much more specific to specific individuals. So again, rather than giving very general generic information about the need to save on your electricity or your uh, or energy consumption more generally we gave households very specific advice that was relevant to their specific situation so if people didn't have say a dishwasher we wouldn't give them advice on how to use it efficiently we use an online platform for that as well which allowed us to do that so so that was reasonably effective. We used information, but in a way that was much more specifically geared towards individual households rather than a general approach. So was that as specific as for your household, 
why don't you use energy-saving light bulbs? Yes. You could turn the lights off more. You could turn your hot water thermostat down. Yes. So we asked them uh, a bunch of questions about what appliances they had, how often they used them, and then we gave them, based on that, we gave them advice on what they could do to save energy. Uh, so we also looked at transport. We had um, commuting to, to work and school, so it involved the entire household, which proved more difficult to change than, uh, than electricity consumption. So, yeah, we gave them a, a whole bunch of tips about things that they could do. We also gave them a goal to strive for because research from psychology also suggests that if people have a goal, that that acts as a motivator to change your behavior. Uh, and we also gave them feedback about how they were doing. So again, feedback is shown to be a motivator for behavior change because you can get a sense of how effective your actions are. Um, and that was the, the idea of the project. So, so it used a combination of intervention. So it was informa tailored information, goal setting and, and feedback. And that was an, an effective approach in terms of reducing uh, energy consumption. So people like knowing, gosh, I've cut my power consumption by 10%. You know, yes. I, I feel good about that. Yes, yes. So the public transport one, or changing modes of transport, tell mm. me a bit more about that. So this was in the Netherlands, so we asked people about their um, transport choices for short trips, so shorter than five kilometres, because we assumed that that would be something that they could find an alternative for, such as cycling and perhaps public transport. But what we found was that that was much more difficult for people to change than other researchers have also found this that transport choices are very strongly habitual and habits are very hard to, to change and so it would require perhaps a, a different kind of intervention to, to try and change people's travel habits. But some research I've been involved with here in New Zealand working with Greater Wellington and also uh, most recently with Wellington City Council is, is looking at uh, travel plans, again, looking at tailored information when people want to commute from, from A to B or from their home to their office, what are some options that they could take? For example, I was involved in evaluating the Let's Carpool scheme, which is still running, I believe. And so, again, the literature suggests that the main barrier for people to start carpooling is that they can't find a match. They don't know who else might be, might be going to the same destination. And so they developed this website which allowed people to find matches. And me and Michael Keel, my colleague from Otago, helped evaluate that. So we found an effect of, of that approach. It's getting people to change transport habits more difficult because it's actually not just about them. It's about the system and the physical environment that yes. they're operating in. Yes, absolutely. And so, so I think... The literature also indicates that transport choices are very much guided by the infrastructure that's available. And obviously, if there's no public transport available, then people are not going to be able to use it. Having said that, there are people who live very close to dedicated cycle lanes, but who do not cycle. And there are also people who live far away from infrastructure, but they will still, they are dedicated cyclists. And the same with walking, for example. So... There is an element where, sure, infrastructure plays a very important role, but at the same time, we also need to look at if you build new infrastructure, will people also use them? And I think the evidence is not necessarily clear on that. Do things ever backfire? Like pe People do something and then change another behaviour as a result, which actually undoes, in a sense, the first one. Yeah, so I haven't done research on this myself, but this is a phenomenon known as moral licensing. So if you do something good for the environment, say you start recycling or you start carpooling or whatever, that, that gives you a moral license to do something not so good. So um, as I said, I haven't done research on this myself, but there is some evidence to suggest that this might be happening. So people uh, kind of compensate in a way, if you will. Yeah, we like to reward ourselves, don't we? Yes.
Yes. So what are you working on at the moment? I'm working with um, the Director of Sustainability, Andrew Wilkes, on a project looking at the effect that the lockdown and COVID has had on behaviours on of staff and students on campus because in a way the lockdown has been a disruption of our habits Uh, and as I said habits are really difficult to change but sometimes habit disruptions can provide interesting opportunities to understand people's behavior Uh, so for example other related examples could be when people move house or when they move offices their normal routines are disrupted, so they might reconsider, for example, their transport choices or other other things they do. So we're looking at COVID uh, and the lockdown and, and looking at interviewing staff and students and looking at what happened, what have they changed, what have they maintained, um, and, um, yeah, with a view to kind of see if we can encourage sustained behaviour changes, yeah. I'm thinking of COVID as well, having unintended consequences in terms of things like Uh, getting people to use more active transport or to use public transport because suddenly with COVID, a bus might not feel like Mm. such a safe thing to do. Getting back in my car might feel safer. Mm. Yes. Yes, I I haven't seen any data on that or I'm not familiar, but that is definitely something that that will have happened. At the same time, people will have been perhaps working from home a lot more, so not using any transport at all. But yeah, I think there's probably a lot of research happening at the moment about how COVID has has impacted our daily routines and and also perhaps where it may have increased our impact uh, as opposed to reduced our impact in terms of people shifting to to cars rather than public transport. Thanks, Vokia. Vokia Abrahams is an environmental psychologist at Victoria University of Wellington. And that's me for tonight. To listen again, find photos and links, or subscribe to our email newsletter, just check out our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also subscribe to us as a podcast on your favourite app, and keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance, and I'll be back at the same time next week. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.